Ladies and gentlemen, you have made it to Brave to the Bone podcast, where we explore the dynamics of human courage in its most dynamic form, personal transformation. I am a nurse who left traditional Western medicine to explore the vast potential of healing that exists in our natural world. From psychic healers to psychedelic wellness, this is your source to your own human potential. And this is your host, Tanya Gilbert. Today, I'm so excited to introduce to you Neil Gahani, who is the founder of Mind Lumen. He is a first-generation Indian immigrant, entrepreneur, and engineer that came out of a profound psychedelic healing experience with the words, the world needs to know. He developed Mind Lumen from that experience, a nonprofit company that is building a regenerative economy in psychedelic healing, connecting guides to explorers anonymously in an alternative to capitalism. He is also an organizer to the SB 519 bill sponsored by California Senator Scott Weiner, decriminalizing psychedelics in California that comes up to vote in November. So remember, if you're listening, please remember to vote. Today, we share his story, his amazing journey, his passion, and his vision. You'll love this. Enjoy. Neil, thank you so much for coming to the show. I'm so happy to have you on today. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? Thank you, Tanya. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I um, I am the founder of MindLumen.Vision, and it's a psychedelic experience platform that connects people who need the experience with guides, therapists, facilitators, and journey spaces. And <clears throat> we are building a platform as a regenerative economy where you earn by giving a sort of a different form of capitalism as opposed to a typical extractive form of capitalism, which is what everybody does today. Uh, so you wanted to create a different model. You can think of it as sort of a collective of collectives. Um, and and I, since I my background is coming from a highly suspect area of tech, uh, I'm just leveraging my skill sets for doing some good in the space that I passionately believe in. So that's where I'm coming from. Neil, that's so amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and then how you pivoted to fall in love with this arena? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously, I'm of I'm a first generation Indian immigrant. Um, you know, I was sent to a military boarding school in India when I was four and a half. Um, and uh, I didn't see my family for probably nine months out of a year from the time I was four and a half till the time I was 15 uh, when I graduated. <clears throat> and then I came to the U.S. when I was 16. I didn't know a soul in this country. And so I pretty much grew up by myself. And I was the youngest kid of four and everybody was much older than me. So even my siblings didn't want to have anything to do with me when I was in school because they were all teenagers and and I was just the four and a half year old. So I never really got to know any of them really that well. And I think, you know, my life was just sort of one adaptation after another adaptation. And I just kept doing that. So I had to make a living and, and you know, Indian families, you typically figure out, you know, what you're going to do for a living. And it's either an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. And I became an engineer. <laughs> and that's that's how I started my living. And I didn't think about it too much until probably 2016, 2017, when I was at a music festival in Oregon during the eclipse. 
and somebody gave me something I didn't even know what it was and things just sort of changed a little bit for me I was exposed to something I I started I started to feel things and I'm and I couldn't make sense of what I was feeling and then I just started reading about it and and then I talked to somebody and some said what did somebody give me I had no idea and it was MDA at the time and then I just started reading on the subject and I, I came across Michael Pollan's book and my wife and I were traveling in, in Colombia at the time. And this was like 2018 or 2019, I think. And we were staying in this, in this, uh, you know, small Airbnb type of place. And next door, there was going to have an ayahuasca ceremony. And I told my wife, like, okay, let's just go do that. Uh, you know, without really understanding anything about mindset, set and setting, no preparation whatsoever, like nothing, right? And and luckily or unluckily for us is that the the shaman didn't actually show up, so it never really happened. And then I came back and I continued reading about the whole thing. And then it wasn't until 2019, early 2020, that I started to sort of think about like, what am I doing here? And what's my purpose in life? And why am I just going through this grind of working in tech? And like what value am I really adding? And um, it wasn't until 2020 when I did my first therapy session, uh, which I'd never done. I'd never been to a therapist. And so that was the first time I did something. And that's was what- Was this with psychedelics or was it just a therapy session? It was just a therapy session in the beginning, but I had now sort of made up my mind that I wanted to try it, you know? I wanted to now do it with the conscious, you know, effort and think about it and prepare for it, mentally prepare for it and, and do that. So I was ready for it starting in early 2020. And then it was so difficult to find, like, who do I, how do I even find a therapist? Who do we trust? And, and so the process that I went through from 2016, 2017 till 2021 was a long process for someone who wants to get in, wants to experience it, but then cannot find it. So that's one of the big motivators for me to start the platform to say, hey, wait a minute, there's so many more people that need healing. And why is it so difficult for people to, when they're ready or when they seek healing, to find the right person for them to actually have this conversation and establish a relationship and then go through the process. So that's what made me start, uh, start the company. But it wasn't until my first experience with MDMA didn't happen until October 2020. And uh, so it's still a long gap. And that's partially because my mom died in the middle of 2020. And then it was sort of hard to deal with it. So I kind of just, you know, dealt with the grief, but not really grief. I mean, it's, it's sort of a weird feeling that I had. And then it wasn't until June of 2021 when I finally began to really understand what my mom went through and what her pain was like. I think it was the June 2021 experience that completely blew me away. And that just basically, then I said, you know, um, just the world, the world needs to know. They just, it just does. And that's, that's what got me started to uh, do something about it. Yeah. So your childhood was really unique in that way that you were on your own and you had to adapt <laughs> so much. 
I'm just curious about the compassion that you experienced. So in that process of your childhood, your adaptation, you didn't really have a loving being to kind of represent or take care of you in that entire time. And then you grow up and you do everything you're supposed to do according to what you think. And then you're realizing all this. And then you had your MDMA experience and then you lose your mother um, during that same time. And you're dealing with um, strange grief because she wasn't all the way in your life. So I'm really curious about, did, were you able to cultivate that because this was tr so transformative to you, were you able to cultivate that inner compassion for yourself to kind of resolve the missing um, love source that you had during your whole childhood? Yeah. I mean, I'm still, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't until probably June, 2021 when I was able to actually address that or actually understand what that even feels like, you know, and, and, and um, like I was saying, uh, when I came out of that experience, it was the first time I understood what actually love feels like, what joy feels like, what ecstasy feels like. And, and, and what sadness feels like and combining them, all of them into a single visceral deep feeling, which I'd never felt any time in my entire life. So that's when sort of the resolution of starting to say, you know what, um, I need to feel compassion for myself. And, and I wasn't, and this is, this is what helped me sort of get through the part of it to say, okay, I need to take care of myself now. And I need to understand what that's like. And I now understand what that feeling is like. So, so I'm able to do it, but I'm still on this, I'm still on this journey. So it's not complete. And I think I'll be on this journey forever. Um, but I'm in much, much better position to actually think about it and understand it and uh, reflect on it uh, than I was at any time before in my life. What an incredible story. And I think that also in your journey, you're very aware of that people have this life experience similar to yours on a huge spectrum. And it is so unfortunate that people would go their whole lives without having a, a safe space and a safe experience and something so powerful to move them into that, that healing. So I, I just want to take a moment to commend you for caring about making this accessible to so many people who have had, yes, different childhoods, but very similar in the way of never learning how to cultivate that self-love. I mean, as humanity as a whole, we all have to figure this out and it's, it's not easy and it's, it's messy. Yeah, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Um, the one thing that I was say that it's like, I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know. I have still a lot of fears, a lot of doubts. All of those are still there. But the one thing I'm very, very sure about is that the process of self-discovery is the right thing. You know, um, that is I'm super sure about. It's like, yeah, I want to go through this. Even it's difficult as it is, but there's lots of moments of joy. Uh, and every day now, it's it, it it feels like I can find joy in every day, in in bits and pieces of it, which to me like just just having the ability to think and live in the moment because I can't undo the past. It is what it is, you know. For the longest time, I I blame my parents. It's like, why did you say like I was 11 years old when I had a big argument with my my parents about. You know, why did you send me 
to a school in a different country when there is a school literally five minutes down the street from where we live, you know. Um, and for the longest time, I didn't understand that, you know, and, and, and um, I even asked my mom later in life and said, well, why was that? You know, my dad had passed and she said, well, it was your dad's idea. And I said, okay, great. My dad's dead now. I can't really ask him. Uh, so, but then I realized that, you know, that's what they had to do. This is, you know, you kind of accept that they had to make some choices. And this was the best thing that they could do for us, you know, and that's totally okay. I can, I can now accept that. I can realize that this is, this, these were the choices that they were dealt and, and they made the choices they thought the best thing for us. And I was lucky. Like I had a good education, you know, they, they put me in a good school. I had a great education. It allowed me to go to college and, and earn a living. So a lot of things were were good in that sense, but I'm living, I was living in the reality, you know, of this extractive capitalistic mode, materialism world. And I wasn't thinking about the reality of my own mind and, and reality of where I think you want to develop your awareness. And, and that's not the reality that I was exposed to and now just getting exposed to it. Mm -hmm. I love how you shared that, you know, you don't know what's going to happen next. You're in the arena where you have done some healing work and now you can step up to the edge of the unknown of what's going to happen next. And so it also needs to be said that when you work on that self-compassion and that self-love, what also simultaneously erupts is this element of self-trust, of trusting yourself and the universe to let things play out. Like you said, that the healing path, you know, for sure is the right path. And that's just incredible. Yeah. 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 I think the, the one thing you said is super important, like trusting and believing in myself. And, and I never did that. You know, I was always had, like I had to put on this facade or persona when I was, you know, when you're working. So now I don't have to do that now. Just like, this is me. You know, this is my true self. I'm trying to be more and more my true self and people can either accept it or don't. And if they don't, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not like I need approval for whatever, you know, I'm just going to be, the nice thing is that I feel good about it myself and, and what I'm doing and I can sleep at night comfortably and, and that's, that's okay, you know. That's amazing. So um, pretty soon after 20, your 2020 experience, you had the idea that you had to make this into an accessible arena. So was your model one of the first? And can you tell us a little bit about like the details? Like what did you really want to see happen? Because I know you care about accessibility and the capitalism point. Yeah. So the things that I learned that most people, most systems, most companies are designed to be working in this capitalistic world where everything is extracted value your labor is extracted and it's not for the benefit of you it's for the benefit of the few people that run it you know it's not like amazon says oh yeah i'm all for customer service but you know they use the word customer not people um and and so they may have the best customer service in the world but they're not doing it for altruistic reasons for the benefit of the people. They're using it to extract value from you. That, that's, that's the rationale for why they're doing it. And we didn't want to create that. We wanted to create 
a sense that the people who are in this community actually had ownership stake in it, you know? And there's models for that. Co-ops are models for that. Like co-ops are very common in Europe. They're not so common in the US. You know, there are a few co-ops, like my friend has Aris Many Bakery here. It's a, that's a that's a co-op. There's housing co-ops and so on. But they're not prevalent. They're not like very common. So how do you make them common? Well, the one way to make them common is to create a digital, essentially a digital co-op. And that's what we're doing. We're doing a digital co-op, which is based on crypto and blockchain. And the reason it's based on crypto and blockchain is first of all, privacy and security are super important. And second, it provides for ownership stake, right? So everybody that's in the community owns the piece of it. That's what this enabled. And so we wanted to create this sort of regenerative economy where you earn by giving. So an example of this would be like, yep, and we basically operate as like a nonprofit. So let's say somebody donates something to Mindlumen, right? Let's say somebody says, okay, I'm gonna give you a thousand dollar donation. But we want to reward the people who donate with with our tokens, essentially, because they are now part owners instead of just philanthropists that give money, you know, because we didn't, we didn't want that. We want, we want people to be engaged into the mission of what we're trying to accomplish, you know. So for everybody that contributes, no matter in whatever small way that they contribute, whether it's their time, whether it's their money, whether it's their support, they should earn something from it. The notion of volunteerism, like what I was saying in the previous talk to somebody, is that why does volunteerism exist? The people who are volunteers are the most passionate people for the cause they believe in, yet they don't get paid. To me, that's extractive. They should get paid. Everybody should be able to make a decent middle-class life no matter where they live. It's, we shouldn't be talking about minimum wage. We should be talking about a middle-class living wage. You know, and everybody should be able to have that. Yes, we have to live in this capitalistic society that we live in, but there are alternative forms that we can now do. And we are we are trying to change that. We we want to create a different type of economy. And we now have the tools to be able to do that. Before we didn't have these tools, we didn't have the crypto, we didn't have blockchain, we didn't have the ability to create decentralized autonomous organizations. We now have these tools available, and they're just tools. You know, but now those tools can be used for building a collective of collectives. And we can monetize that. We can we can create economic incentives for that. And we can create ownership structures for that. So that's what's the fascinating part about it. And it's also sort of just happens to be that it jives with my skill set, you know. <laughs> that's, I, I call myself a cat herder and a conductor, right? It's like I manage people and I manage remote distributed teams. This is what I did for a living. So now I can take my skill set and apply it to my passions about how to make this work for others. Wow, that is incredible. Okay, so if you can break it down to where we can understand it as far as possible services. So so I'm a nurse and I'm going to school with Fluence and really excited about what I can do with assisting and integration and whatnot. So how would it work with one person offering services and then getting tokens and what is available in this pool? So if you were like, if you were taking, uh, you know, if you're offering integration services, you're, you would be part of sort of the guide therapy facilitators network, right? So you'll be on 
on our platform as a facilitator or guide or therapist. Obviously, there'll be a vetting criteria for people, right? And so my partner, who's a psychiatric nurse, you know, is helping with the vetting criteria. And, and I have friends who are psychologists who are sort of advisors to, to help with that, right? And so, so we want to build this network of facilitators, guides, therapists. And we want to remove all the friction for you as a facilitator guide. That means your, so your full focus is on helping the explorer. So that means you don't have to worry about payments. You don't have to worry about logistics. You don't have to worry about scheduling. You don't have to worry about food. You don't have to worry about music. You don't have to worry about the space. You don't have to worry about any of those things that causes friction. The reason we're doing it, the reason we're removing friction for guides and therapists facilitators is to focus on the primary goal, which is to help the explorer, is in service of the explorer. That's our primary audience because I come from that. They're the ones who need the healing. All the talent that the guides and the therapists bring to the table is in service of that healing for that person. So we want to remove all friction you know, in that process. It's not an easy thing to do. That's our mission. That's where we want to go. And so people then who are seeking help, seeking the healing, who are also on our network can say, well, what kind of experience do I want? What kind of experienced people do I want? Do I want them to have experience with specific kinds of substances? Do I want, do I pick a person of color as my guide? Do I care whether they're female or male? Like I was asking people who were calling me and say, like, how do I, how do I find a guide? And I said, okay, well, what are you looking for in, in a guide? Like, what is, what is your criteria? You know, are you ready or are you, you know, in the curious stage versus the ready stage? Right. So part of it also is helping the explorer to know where, are you just curious about this or are you really ready to go down this path? You know, and, and if you're ready to have a match for either, or if they're exactly curious or if they really want to do the work, that's right. And so we want to be able to make that process super simple for them, but we also want to make it completely private and secure. So even the reason we do it through crypto is because I don't know who you are and I don't need to know who you are. I just need to be able to trust you based on your experience and your skill set and what you bring to the table. And, you know, there's, there's going to be lots of guides going to be needed. And so part of our nonprofit work is to also fund the education of training, you know, through this, right? And so that's the other part that we need to do because Oregon alone may require 40 to 100,000 new facilitators. Well, it's going to be probably 5X or 10X that if California passes SB 509. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just at the cusp of that. And the scale, the problem scale is going to get huge. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to address through the platform because it's going to be a big problem to solve. And we can we can now do that. We have the ability to do it. And, and so it's as challenging as it is, it's doable now. Um, and, and we can solve this problem, you know, so... 
Wow, what an amazing journey with your own personal healing. And I'm just so excited for you that you were able to find something that matched your skill set. It's like it it's like you did your own work and the universe was like, here you go. This is what you gotta do. Yeah, I mean that and just that just sort of fell into place. It wasn't like I was looking for it. I was going, you know, I just needed I was trying to figure out like, what can I do when I came out of it. Like I was thinking about like. I need to do something in this space. I knew after June that I needed to do something. I just didn't know what, what it was. You know, I didn't know what my calling was going to be, you know, and, and this just, it just sort of somehow fell into place uh, for me and go, yeah, you know, I think I can help because I know the pain that I went through to figure out how do I, how, who do I even talk to? And how do I trust? How do I establish that trust with, with my guide and with my facilitator? And I had to think back and go, what was I looking for? I didn't even know what was I looking for? You know, I didn't have any of those answers, you know, and, and I can imagine that so many people who need this healing are going through this in their heads you know, and, and what could I do given my own experience, you know? And, and so I kind of focused on the areas that where I have direct personal experience. And, and then it just so happens like, oh, shoot, yeah, I can take my suspect skill sets and tech and apply it for something good. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention that, you know, I love that you said that because it is in our own experience of our own suffering that we have a lot of understanding and it's like the opening and the pathway to the work that we're meant to do. And there are so many people out there. There's a huge array of people out there, like you said, and you're really embracing that as far as the explore, but there's people out there who are suffering and they're doing all the exercise and they gave up drinking alcohol and they did everything that they the world is telling them what they're supposed to do in order to feel better. And it's just not enough. And it's those people that it's like just a little bit of a catalyst can sometimes be enough. And, and then also, it also needs to be said that, you know, some people really want it to be a miracle cure and they don't understand that there's a a big process, but the people, as far as the work that they got to put in, in really so much reflection and integration, integrating every experience in your life sometimes. Yeah. That's just so amazing that we're able to look at that. And I'm so excited for my listeners to hear. So say somebody wanted to scope out, um, where do they go to scope out your website? Um, do you have an app? Yeah. So if you just go to the website, which is mindlumen.vision and at the bottom of the website, there's a discord channel. You can just go into the discord channel. That's how you, that's how you first join. If you're interested, you know, obviously read, read everything. We, we publish everything. One of the, one of the ethoses that we have is that we work in the public. Our decisions are made in the public. Our philosophy is public. You know, we have certain principles that we have published on our website. For example, we don't think any one person in our company should more make more than five X or seven X the lowest paid person. That's public. We state that categorically, right? That applies to whether they're earning tokens or earning fiat, uh, normal currency, right? We separate voting from earning. 
in the sense because we don't want money to dictate votes. We create that ecosystem that allows to do that. That's where we're separating governance tokens from non-governance tokens, right? Uh, so investors can invest and buy our utility tokens, but they do not have a say in how we govern unless they are like directly contributing to the mission in some way, shape or form, you know, then you can have a say. But if you're not contributing to the mission, then you don't really have a say on, on how we govern. Uh, and that's as so we wanted to create these sort of structures and it allows us to do that now. These tools allows us to do that, create these structures. So that people can just read up on it and, and then they can decide whether they want to be part of the community to help move the vision forward and they are they can participate and be a contributor and be an owner uh, in that process. You know, it's up to them. And what about the legal arena, Neil? Are you working as an advocate with the organizations that are trying to have a bunch of insight into how we need to navigate this field? Or what does that work look like? Yeah, so, yeah, we are definitely talking to a bunch of law firms um, who are in this space. And they are, we're having lots of conversations with them, actually. and, And part of it, we're a little bit, you know, we're, we're obviously operating in a gray area, but since we don't sell any substances on our site, you know, we are, you know, we, we're, we're facilitators, we're connecting people effectively. So there is a little bit of gray area and where we operate, particularly around where the journey spaces are, right? Because those are physical locations. Um, so we have to be careful about where those journey spaces exist and, and only those journey spaces can be on our network. Right. And, and so where and, and the way to way to do that is because everybody's operating in this legal gray area is one of one of my one of my colleagues told me, like, the best way to think about it is that you need to kind of do the research in the counties and investigate the county sheriff, the local prosecutor, you know, and see how friendly they are to psychedelics, you know, and if they are, then you can you can, you know, establish jurisdictions uh, in there. But even then. Just because somebody's offering their space is just like Airbnb. So mm-hmm. like they're offering, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we don't use people's names. You know, yes, there's, you know, we will have a way for people to sign up and get email and all of that kind of stuff. But on the public blockchain, your name is not known anywhere. You're just, it's it's a crypto address. <laughs> so, so your payments are done anonymously, uh, you know, uh, to that address and, and no other information about you is needed. The only time there's information about you that's shared is once we've narrowed down that the explorer wants to talk to like two or three people and then they want to interview and have that conversation. You will facilitate that conversation. That's the only time the names are even revealed. And so we're trying to do things as being as private and, and conscious as we can about, about people's privacy, uh, given in this space. But we're also trying to make sure that's efficient as, as possible for people to actually work in this space. As a company, are you guys concerned about psychedelics moving more into a medical model or do you have a preference as a company? We, we you know, we, we definitely are concerned about the medical. We, we, don't, we don't think it should be. We think that, uh, you know, that's one option because for certain things like PTSD and I can totally see that, you know, where, where you need a clinical model right so i think they will both exist or coexist 
But what we are like in, on, on SB 519, for example, in the working group part of the language in the, in the text, we're very concerned about who sits on the working group, right? So we're very much advocates for making sure that 60 to 70% of the working group are people who've had psychedelic experience, not law enforcement and clinicians who have not had any. Now, if they're law enforcement clinicians that have had psychedelic experiences, they know what that's like, then sure. you know. But if it's more than 50% of the working group that does not have experience with these substances, then they do not understand what that's like. They, they cannot take, they cannot be sympathetic or empathetic to the explorer's point of view, the, the, heal, the healing seeker's point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because you just don't know. You, you can you can intellectualize it, but unless you have personally felt it, it'd be very very. Different. It's like I was intellectualizing it when I was reading stuff. You know, it's like yeah, I get it, but it, you really we don't really get it. <laughs> we only get it once we've actually personally experienced it and go, holy shit, yeah, now we get it. <laughs> you know. So did you find in your own process that you wanted to try everything because you needed to see how it would work being in this position that you're in, you know, working with psilocybin, Mm -hmm. ketamine? I'm gradually opening myself up to try different things. So I've tried MDMA, I've tried MDMA with mushrooms, I've tried pure mushrooms, I've tried, you know, um, uh, LSD. Um, And so now I'm on this journey to figure out what these substances do and how do they directly impact me in what way. And, and, and so I'm very, very curious about that now. You know? So it's, that, it's like, how will my discovery be different on ayahuasca versus LSD versus mushrooms? You know, I know what the mushrooms feel like now, right? I'm not, the jury is still out for me on what LSD is going to feel like, even though I've tried it, it's still not clear to me, like where, where that, and I certainly don't know where ayahuasca would fit in to that and how, as, as much as I read about it constantly all the time. So I've read a lot of other people's experiences, right. But at the same time, I don't know what that will do for me personally. And, and I'm very curious about that. So Oh uh, yeah, I'm definitely in the learning mode of, of trying to figure that out. I was just finishing up the rest of Michael Pollan's book and you said that it had opened up so much for you. He did such a great job. It was such a great book. And in the end, they were talking about the studies where people were having extreme fear um, of death and how the people moving through those experiences, the ones who did the best had a complete, you know, spiritual, um, meaningful experience. It's, and it's so interesting. And they're trying to figure out, well, why does this complete? I think he was referring to what people had sort of this, this ego death experience you know and 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 i don't know like i when i i took when i when i did that in june and i don't know whether it would be called ego that because I, I don't even know what that would feel like i couldn't i can't really i can't really fathom fathom that all all i know is that the, the profound experience of that part of it is like it's like I was switching dimensions like I was going through six or seven switches of, of dimensions. And it was like I was going deeper and deeper into this space, but I wasn't 
scared. I was crying for like three hours. And, you know, my guy was there holding my hand the whole time. And my breathing was like very, very pronounced, you know, probably three or four times during that session. Um, but it was this notion every time I said the, the phrase that I have on my side, which is the world needs to know. I actually said that during the session. And every time I said that, I would switch dimensions. And it was like, it was just, it was, it was like, holy cow, this is, this is, this is just amazing. And then it would just go deeper and deeper. And it, a, and it culminated in this feeling, a single sort of deep visceral feeling where all these emotions, whether you, I was feeling sadness, I was feeling joy, I was feeling love, I was feeling ecstasy, all of them were rolling into this single sort of deep visceral feeling, you know, and that I've never, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to explain that to people. I, I really can't, you know, just it's, 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 it's crazy, but I just can't explain it. Yeah. And it's a, a really good point because it does tend to also be incredibly unique, but also um, very similar in the way that we are um, waking up and healing and that we are all, all one. And that, you know, you have cultivated this deep love and this, this planting the seeds for this idea of what's possible in the, the world right now. Is this isolated to the United States, your program, or what What are your thoughts there? No, it, it definitely won't be isolated to the United States, but I think we're going to start um, in places where it's, um, you know, where it's decriminalized and, uh, you know, so counties and states and cities and things like that because it will grow organically, you know, I don't think. You know where it's le- where where it's legal and decriminalized is kind of where we're going to focus our time and attention. And then as more and more places get decriminalized and more and more places get legalized, we'll expand into those areas, you know, organically. And that's just and well, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. And then my other question for you is. I know you must have realized, and I just want to clarify this for the listeners, that your experience is not necessarily isolated. I'm sure that you've worked with a lot of people who have done a very similar path that mm-hmm. got to go through this healing and were, were like, oh my God, I want to participate in one way or another in this field. Is that oh, true? Oh yeah, totally, totally. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm part of the, the signal group. There's a professional uh, signal group and there's lots of people in that space that have gone through their own different personal experiences, right? I think, I think the challenge for us as a community we, we talk to ourselves in the psychedelic space, you know, and, and so I think our challenge is to how to explain it to people who are on the edges of it and who are not in the psychedelic space. I think the people in the space who have got experience with it kind of, they, they kind of get it. They, oh, they know, you know, they, they, they get it. The part of the problem that I think I want to address is the educational problem of explaining it to people who are not in this space or who are just curious about it, right? And how do you do it in a way that is not sort of the Timothy Leary way, which is just, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out kind of thing, right? I don't think, I think, I think we need to be cautious and careful about how we explain it. But I think the more people that are in the open talking about it, that's the first step in the process. You know, even, even uh, John Perry Barlow, finally said that, you know, I'm going to talk about my own LSD experience, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if you don't talk about it, then people don't know 
like, you know, they can, they can relate to you if they know you and they can relate to you and they can say, oh, you know, somebody who's working in tech, it's like everybody in tech is like, has had it. They, they, they do microdosing here in the Bay Area. Like it's pretty common, but nobody's talking about it. Right. Or at least not talking about it openly. I mean, they will talk about it in hushed tones in, in, a, in, in a community, but they're still not, the stigmatization is still there. And we need to, you know, first get over that stigma. Um, and we need to be able to, you know, so having these conversations is super important because people need, like, I'm totally now open about like what my experience is like. And I, and, and I'm not, you know, yeah, if I'm looking like I don't have a job right now, right? I'm not getting paid, uh, you know, I don't have a way to make a living, right. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And so I'm, if I go try to look for a job or a thing, and, and if people find this out that I've, I've done this, it's like, I, I don't really care. It's, it's like, you know, I can't, I have to be true to myself. And, and this is what makes me who I am. And it allows me to teach myself who I am. And then these, these medicines are teachers to me and they, they help me. So I'm okay yeah, with that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for saying that. I feel the same way. And I really want to work with nurses and represent nurses in some way um, to also be true to themselves in that way. And you brought up a good point with the conditioning of the drug war and like the D.A.R.E. program. A lot of people that I communicate with have this old understanding where, oh, well, I'm using drugs. And I wanted to move this a little bit into the space of recovery because, you know, I, I went to the psychedelic conference in Las Vegas, the psychedelic wellness conference, and there was a lot of really wonderful recovery talk. And people, we have these old conditionings in so many ways. And this is, you know, it just reminds us of that. But especially with people that have been in recovery for a long time that need deeper healing, um, we're going to start to open up more. And we're going to have Tyler Fink on the podcast uh, in a couple of weeks. But it's it's really interesting to kind of work with people and not deconditioning. And you're right, the more we talk about it, we'll be able to be more flexible and get some more healing and forgive ourselves and not judge ourselves. And, and that's also part of the psychedelic work is that voice that that shames and blames begins to become more flexible and loosens up in every department, whether you're in recovery, whether you're a very straight-laced human being. Yeah, no, I think this, like what you're doing is is super important for us to do this, right? It's, it's at, at the end of the day, this the message needs to get out to people that it's it's okay. It's it's like I asked the question: Why are the most addictive su substances legal, and the least addictive substances not legal uh, on Schedule One? It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it's like, and I asked I asked the questions who are sort of against drugs. So they go, "Well, yeah, I don't want to. I want. I don't. You know, they're against drugs." But then I asked them, like, explain how you can justify to yourself that the addictive substances are, are legal and, and, you know, pharma companies can hook you on SSRIs and tobacco companies and alcohol companies can hook you on those. Those are perfectly legitimate, but things like psychedelics, which are non-addictive, uh, you know, they're not like, how do you, how does one justify that to themselves? I don't know. I would love to hear that explanation from somebody because it doesn't make any sense to Absolutely. me at least. And are you familiar with David Nutt's work and yeah. the way he did the spectrum and how alcohol proved to be as far as dangers and addictiveness, the top and yeah. completely legal. I mean, and you know, the work of AA, you know, looking in that arena, I mean, it's so prevalent and it's so accepted 
And it's really interesting to just see that. Whereas from a recovery perspective, also, there's a lot of drugs that we kind of shame and blame because they're not legal, even like so NA doesn't have a success rate like AA does. And I wonder if it's just like our public belief, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's what we, it's like, it's like living in the matrix, whatever you choose to believe, you know, and even people, I've shown that data on, on David Dutt's study, right? But there's people who are so adamant to go, yeah, they don't believe it, you know, because they would, they would say, oh, well, the study is not this or study's not that, or, or the data doesn't make sense. They're all, they'll find it because there's their own bias that they want to use because they come with the preconceived notion that drugs are quote unquote bad. I mean, I grew up with that. Like, mm-hmm. so I, like, I never did drugs when I was, you know, I was a kid, like a lot of people that I know were psychedelics, they, you know, they were, they were doing psychedelics when they were teenagers. I, my, one of my closest friends was like, you know, he was in Berkeley, he was doing psychedelics when he was, you know, in teenager in college and, you know, he's a psychologist. And, but I never did that. I never had any access to even marijuana or whatever, you know, and I'm going like I was told for the longest time, this stuff is bad, you know, and I grew up with this stuff is bad message, you know, without asking the question, well, why is it bad? And finally go, you know what? People need to open up their minds and go even even the curiosity to open up your mind and ask that question, you know, which is let's just first be curious about asking the question about why? Why do people say what they say? And then we can have a conversation about whether you're actually open to the curiosity of learning and understanding. And, and then we can go down the road about whether you actually decide. Now, you can still decide. I mean, I don't think psychedelics are a panacea. They're not a panacea. It's, it's work, like you've said. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard work. You have to look into your soul. hmm and you may not find what you like when you look into your soul, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's bad. Mm-hmm. And when I was having a rough trip, my wife said, I'm so sorry you feel bad. And I'm saying, well, feeling sad isn't feeling bad. It's feeling. And that the sense of ability to feel is huge. I didn't know how to feel that. Men are taught not to show their feelings. So we are raised that way and we are conditioned that way. And to change that persona of yourself to realize, no, it's okay to feel sad. You know, it's okay to feel joy. It's okay to feel love. It's okay to feel vulnerable. It's okay to feel all kinds of things. Wow. And also, you know, it must be said the neuroplasticity that can occur. I mean, we're, it is work, like you say, and we are changing our persona, but when we begin to like the title of Michael Pollan's book, how to change your mind, he's actually talking about neuroplasticity. We are making new um, uh, neural new connections, connections. so that we can make different meaning and have different understanding. And then suddenly in many, 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 many cases, anxiety and depression lifts and you become a person who's now hungry for knowledge and remembering your passion and remembering who you are. So, So 
if, for anybody out there listening, this has just been such a beautiful conversation. And I like to say, grab the next right thing. And we don't always know what it is. And, you know, use your intuition. If your company is making that completely accessible, what is your intuition telling you that you should look for just as an explorer, just dipping your toes in? And a lot of times microdosing is just such a wonderful way to start because then you can just be like, okay, I'm just getting a little bit of an understanding of this uh, arena. Yeah, I yeah, totally. I think just be curious, you know, just be curious about your own mind, you know, and think about what what is there to explore about in your own mind and in your own soul. And if you're curious about that, you will you will automatically gravitate to this journey. Being curious about yourself is kind of to me that's that was the epiphany. That was that was the early epiphany that basically said, "Oh, I wonder what more there is to learn about myself." And that's what got me started on that path. You know, there was a trigger. There was a trigger in 2016 that just opened up something and say, "Oh, wow, this is this is possible. There's something new here." And and how is this possible? And then that's that's kind of what opened up my mind to sort of starting to explore and learn and read and, and read, read a lot and study a lot. And, you know, there's lots of information out there. Check multiple sources and, you know, there's lots of trusted sources that you can go to and we can help with that. And lots of people out there in the community that will help with that, you know, tell you, hey, this is a trusted source. This is not a trusted source. The community is super cool. You know, they, they, will, they will definitely help people with that if people are curious. Wow, Neil, thank you so much. Have you um, had an opportunity to tell your story on different platforms? I'm sure some listeners are going to want to follow up with um, listening to more of your story and, uh, about your company. If they go to our website on the media page, there's a couple of, you know, uh, one podcast that I've, I've done, the early podcast is, was done and also got published in the Microdose uh, HQ uh, news so they can read that. And I'm doing more more such things. So uh, so talking to you, and I'm going to be doing another one. I'm going to be two more this week. And so yeah, I think if the more people know about it, I'm happy to share my story. It's it's you know I'm not unique, like you said. There's lots of people that have gone through similar things, and but I think it's just it's all of us get coming together and sharing our stories and letting the world know. Thank you so much, Neil. I appreciate your story so much. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Tanya. This was amazing. Thanks for your wonderful questions. You're an amazing host. I look forward to talking with you again. I am so excited because I have a two-hour signature workshop Saturday, February 5th. It's called The Journey Made Real. This workshop is designed for heart-centered individuals seeking lasting, meaningful change. We learn integration as a lifestyle, how microdosing psilocybin heals, building resiliency and mindfulness to emotional triggers, gaining creativity and momentum towards our purpose. We weave our vulnerabilities into strength and share an ecosystem that brightens your understanding of self-trust. This workshop is only $27. It's February 5th. Please sign up on my website, tanyagilbert.com. That's T-A-W-N-Y-A, gilbert.com.